Let me pray and then we'll get into this passage. Dear Lord, as we come to your word now, I pray that my words might honour you, that we will understand your word clearly and hear the things that you want us to hear. Amen. As parents, we try all sorts of things to discipline our children. In our worst moments, you know, we scream and shout at our children because they're screaming and shouting at their brother or sister, and we, we don't particularly see the irony of that in the moment. But uh, in that sort of situation, it's probably less about discipline and more just about sinful anger. Uh, in our better moments, uh, we try to you know, appeal to reason. Uh, then we discover, of course, that reasoning with a three-year-old is quite difficult, uh, and a, a seven-year-old, and as it turns out, a 15-year-old. Uh, in our household, there were lots of threats uh, counting to three, and we, we were always hoping that we wouldn't actually get to three and they'd call our bluff because we really didn't have a lot to offer at that point, but, uh, but most likely we'd end up with something like go and sit on the steps and, and there'd be a little walk of shame uh, to our, our steps that went upstairs. Uh, but the whole point of discipline is that we want to help our kids learn. Uh, sometimes it's about learning the right behaviour. And so you can't hit your brother or sister to get what you want. And you can't throw yourself on the floor screaming and shouting because you want ice cream for lunch. Uh, and sometimes it's about, about protection. Uh, I think, you know, going back to the ice cream for a moment, you know, if, you know, shouting at our kids is sort of one end of, of the bad discipline spectrum, I think the appeasement end is probably just as bad, but we've all done it, where you sort of go, look, okay, we'll give you the ice cream if you eat the sandwich. All right, we'll give you the ice cream if you eat a bite of the sandwich. Okay, fine, just have a piece of lettuce and you can eat the tub. All right. But the whole point is we are trying to teach our children something. And, of course, the greater the risk, uh, the more severe the discipline because we, we, want to realize, we want them to realise just how much is at stake. And today we're starting a new series in the book of Isaiah. And let me say right from the start, it is hard work. Uh, sometimes it's hard to understand and sometimes even when we do understand it, it's hard to hear. Because there's an awful lot of tough love. Uh, God has been faithful to his promises, but Israel and Judah have not been faithful to God. Now, I appreciate that history is not everyone's happy place. You were kind of over it with Burke and Wills in about fourth grade. Uh, but, but I do think it is helpful to at least spend a moment providing some sense of context for the book of Isaiah. So let me go really briefly, okay, right back to the start. So we've got Abraham, all right? Abraham, trust me, we'll get there quickly. Abraham was the father of Israel. He was old. He had no children. But God promised that through him, he would be the father of a great nation. And through that nation, all the nations of the world would be blessed. God is faithful to that promise. Abraham ends up having one son, Isaac. Isaac has two sons. Unfortunately, one of those sons, Jacob, has a growth mindset. He has 12 sons and one daughter. And then after some rather awkward family interactions, they end up in Egypt. 
And in Egypt, they continue to grow as a nation, so that's a good thing, but they end up becoming a slave nation to the Egyptians, which was bad. Then after 400 years, God sends Moses to rescue them out of Egypt. And then after a further 40 years and lots of complaining, they end up in the promised land. And from the time they leave Egypt to the time they receive this promised land, God continually reminds them that if you honour me, I will bless you. And if you dishonour me, I will discipline you. Now, once they're in the promised land, they want a king like the nations around them, which wasn't a good thing, but God gives them what they want. And this king is supposed to rule under the kingship of God. So there was Saul, uh, who looked the part, he was an impressive figure, but failed to listen to God. He ends up being insanely jealous and completely paranoid. Uh, Then there was David, uh, who was deeply flawed, but he's still described as a man after God's own heart. And he was followed by Solomon, and Solomon is most famous for being wise, but he was particularly unwise in his choice of marrying lots of foreign wives. And that's where the wheels start to fall off. After he dies, there's civil war, the kingdom splits, and so we've got ten tribes in the north. Uh, They're called Israel. And then we've got two tribes in the south, and they're called Judah. Now, just to you know, keep everyone on their toes, Israel is sometimes called Ephraim, and later Judah will be called Israel. Okay, so you've just got to sort of keep up. All right. But Isaiah is writing to Judah, and the capital of Judah is Jerusalem, which is also called Zion. And it represents the beating heart of the nation. And it should beat for the Lord, but it doesn't. Zion has forsaken the Lord and the temple which represents God's presence amongst his people is now sitting in this cesspit of evil and corruption. So from the opening words of Isaiah, we know it was written during the reign of four kings, uh, Uzziah and Jotham, who are generally pretty good, Uh, Jotham got a little arrogant and ended up dying of leprosy. Uh, Ahaz was thoroughly bad, and and Hezekiah is is, as good as it gets. Uh, And as they rule, they rule in politically tumultuous times. So in terms of the world around them, we've got Israel and Aram in the north, and they've formed an alliance, and they've got eyes for Judah, but the real threat is actually the Assyrian Empire. And in the rise and fall of empires, God will use Assyria like a rod to judge Israel and Aram, but they will also come for Judah. In fact, they'll come all the way to the walls of Jerusalem. And Judah's unfaithfulness to God and the conflict around them is all connected. So Isaiah is saying, if you want to know what God's discipline looks like, then this is it. But in this discipline, we also see God's faithfulness to his promises and his mercy. And ultimately, Isaiah will point us to God's plan to send his son, who will deal with the problem of Judah's unfaithfulness, but also the unfaithfulness of humanity. And when he comes, he will come and establish a kingdom that is truly worthy of his name. 
So, uh, this opening chapter of, of Israel, of Isaiah, so reads partly as an opening you know, statement in a court case and a little bit like a frustrated parent. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. And as a result, they've experienced God's discipline. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. You know, we get a sense of frustration. But you know, it doesn't matter how much God has disciplined Judah, they, they just don't listen. And there's only so often that you can get to sort of two and three quarters before you finally reach that point of genuine discipline. And even then, Judah don't hear. So we've got the Philistines attacking from the west, we've got Israel and Aram attacking from the north. And they've paid their dues to Assyria. But, you know, you know what appeasement works like? The more you appease, the more they want. And in verse 7, we get a, a glimpse of what this looks like. Your country is desolate. Your cities burned with fire. Your fill, fields have been stripped by foreigners right before you. So the Lord is disciplining Judah. And the goal of discipline is restoration. God wants his people to recognise their sin and to turn and repent. But it does sort of raise all sorts of questions for us. You know, as bad things happen in our lives, how should we interpret those events? You know, is my suffering the result of some sin in my life? Is this God disciplining me? Uh, and they're the types of questions that are wonderful to spend a whole stack of time with. Let me just say at least a few brief things. And I think as a helpful start is what Luke says, sorry, what Jesus says in the book of Luke, where he's asked a similar question in the context of a tower falling and killing 18 people. And he says, do you think they were more guilty than any others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent you too will all perish. So in that particular example, Jesus is saying we live in a broken world where bad things happen to everyone. And so we shouldn't be too surprised if bad things happen to us. In that context, it wasn't God disciplining or judging, but the point is that we should all leave live prepared lives, that whatever the circumstances, are we prepared for a day when we will stand before God and we will be judged? Secondly, our suffering may well, may well not be the result of our sin. It may well just be the result of our own life choices. If you're lazy at work and you get fired, then that's just the natural outworking of our behaviour. It's not necessarily God's divine intervention. I think, thirdly, God uses hard things to refine us, but refining is not always the consequence of sin. And certainly that's the big theme in the book of Job. And Job recognises that. You know, his wife says to him, you know, curse God and die. And he says in response, he says, shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And he recognises again, part of living in the brokenness of life is that we experience it together. And then finally, yes, bad things that happen could be a result of our sin. 
We know that God disciplines those who he loves, and discipline is all about rectifying bad behaviour so that we can avoid something far worse in the future. You know, in discipline, there's still hope of restoration. And that was in our reading today in the book of Hebrews, where we read, endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children, for what children are not disciplined by their father? So when bad things happen, uh, we should consider, you know, is there an issue of sin in our life? And if there is, then as we recognise that, we need to repent and we need to change. But even if we do change, we might discover it doesn't actually change our circumstances, that our suffering might continue. But at very least, uh, we've recognised a sin and we've been able to do something about it. So getting back to our passage, even in this devastating picture of God's discipline, there's this little sort of breath moment where, you know, if you imagine sort of, you know, being tumbled around in the surf, you know, just getting that half a breath of reprieve before you, you know, get, you know, tumbled back in. And we see that a little bit here, even though Israel, Judah, sorry, are completely defenceless against their enemies, you know, like, for example, a hut in a cucumber field, which is, I know, what came to your mind. You know, God is still merciful. Uh, he doesn't wipe them out. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. You know, Sodom and Gomorrah have gone down in history for two things, the debauchery of the people and the way that God completely destroyed that city. You know, those two cities, you know, by raining down sulphur and fire. Now, Judah hasn't experienced what Sodom and Gomorrah have experienced, but their sin is just as serious. So the very next line, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, Judah isn't literally Sodom and Gomorrah, but that's how they're living. And the point is that they deserve the same judgment that Sodom and Gomorrah deserved, but what they've experienced is discipline. And I think we need to hear the same message. You know, so often we want to minimise our sin by comparing ourselves to someone else. And we can always find someone, fortunately, who is worse than us, and that, that sort of makes us feel good about ourselves. Or we justify why our bad behaviour is actually good. You know, no one is getting hurt. You know, this makes me feel good about myself. I deserve good things. God wants me to be happy. Uh, This is my true self. And actually, that last one is probably true. Because despite what our culture wants to say, our true self is not our best self. Because our self is always marred by sin. But if we just see sin in terms of our behaviour, then we've missed half the picture. Uh, Because the bigger issue is where we stand in terms of our allegiance to God. If you can imagine in a conflict, you know, two soldiers. uh, I was was watching Predator the other day, so I've got, you know, these in my mind. You've got one soldier, you know, has the whopping big Gatling gun thing. You know, the one that sprays a thousand bullets a second type stuff. And then you've got the other person, you know, Enemy at the Gates, another good movie, uh, you know, where you've got the sniper. You know, you've got a Gatling gun, you've got a sniper. If they get captured, no one says, well, you're a really bad enemy because you used lots of bullets and you're not such a bad enemy because, you know, you used a few bullets. Uh, the point is that they're, they're both enemies. 
Uh, and it's a little bit the same with us and sin. You know, we want to compare ourselves about who's slightly less bad than the other person. But at the heart of the issue is our allegiance and our allegiance to ourselves rather than our allegiance to God. For Judah, uh, they say their allegiance is to God and they've got all this religious activity that says their allegiance is to God. But all God sees is their hypocrisy. You know, lots of religious stuff but no real faithfulness. So verse 15, stop bringing meaningless offerings Your incense is detestable to me. A few verses later, when you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. You know, we don't have uh, offerings uh, or new moon festivals, but it's easy to see how we can use religion as a substitute for faithfulness. Yeah, so coming to church or being baptised or sharing in communion, they all become a substitute for actually loving God and loving our neighbour as ourselves. It's kind of comfort without any real commitment. And this failure to love our neighbour, you know, for Judah, isn't just sort of about, you know, sharing cups of tea over the fence. They've forsaken justice for those who are least able to defend themselves. And a fish rots from the head. You, your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes and chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. So Isaiah has painted a picture of Judah that is just thoroughly and irretrievably corrupt and absolutely, totally incapable of self-reform. And by any reasonable measure, you look at them and you go, they do not deserve another chance. They don't deserve discipline. They deserve judgment. And that is very, very good news for us. Because if God is willing to be patient with Judah for all their sin, then God is also willing to be patient with us. And so he says to Judah, come now, Let us settle this matter. Enough already, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you'll eat the good things of the land. You know, it'd be easy for God to look at us, you know, a bit like a a barnyard wreck. You know, and you'd see all of this messiness. But for God, he doesn't see a wreck. Uh, He sees something that is created in his image. Uh, We are fearfully and wonderfully made. You know, broken but precious. And so he disciplines because discipline is part of restoration. But it's not simply us seeing the error of our ways and reforming ourselves. Uh, It's God patiently, graciously working in us. And in the context of Judah... As God moves individual hearts and minds, he restores the nation. So verse 26, God will restore your leaders of old. Zion, who have become a prostitute, will be called a city of righteousness. And Zion will become a blessing to the nation. So Isaiah chapter 2, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. 
You know, when Judah returned from exile and the temple is restored, for a moment in time, it looks like this is where God is going to fulfill that promise. Uh, but at best, it becomes a, a shadow of what they hoped for. But when Jesus enters Jerusalem riding on a donkey, again, they're thinking, this is the moment. And they scream, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. So they think this is the moment, and actually they're right, but for all the wrong reasons. Uh, They're imagining a political king, a political institution, but Jesus comes as a king who will suffer humiliation and death to pay the price for sin. And he doesn't just restore a national Israel to the good old days. He goes about establishing an eternal kingdom, unbound by geography, but defined by people and not place. Uh, But we do still look forward to a place. So in Revelation, we read these words. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now in the moment it's hard to see any discipline as good or loving. And certainly as we read the book of Isaiah, we feel, you know, we hear the weight and we feel the weight of tough love. And at times we might even feel that God is harsh or unfair. Uh, We might prefer appeasement, uh, but in the end, discipline is good. Uh, In the end, discipline, as hard as it is, spares us from something far more significant, something far more serious. And so I hope out of today uh, that we get a couple of things. I hope we get a sense of what God is doing in history. I hope perhaps even more so that we get a sense of the seriousness of sin, but also uh, the grace of God, that he disciplines us because he loves us. Let me pray. Dear Lord, uh, we do thank you for, for your word. We thank you that in it you show your holiness, you show our sinfulness, but you also show that we are loved. And so, Lord, I pray that we see that in this passage today, but I pray that we will know it deeply, that your spirit will convict us of your love for us and the mercy you have shown us through your son. Amen.